On the morning of June 26, 1876, a group of Crow Indian scouts accompanied U.S. Army General Alfred Terry to recover the remains of what had been the 7th Cavalry Division near the Little Bighorn River in southeastern Montana Territory. The previous day, June 25th, the 7th Cavalry, under the leadership of Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer, had attacked a large village of Sioux and Cheyenne and been almost completely decimated. As the Crow Scouts had left the scene of the battle the previous day, the last thing they had reported seeing was the bodies of the 7th Cavalry strewn all over the country. The morning of June 26, General Terry rode with 400 U.S. infantrymen farther up the valley of Little Bighorn, where they discovered the remains of a large Indian camp. Amidst the village leftovers, they found the badly burned remains of three severed heads and a few bloody articles of clothing that belonged to officers of the 7th Cavalry. But the worst was yet to come. As they approached the ridge, officers observed what appeared to be white boulders on the distant hillsides shining in the sun. Focusing his field glasses on the far slope, an officer nearly dropped them in horror when he realized the white shapes weren't boulders at all, but rather the naked bodies of the dead. Captain Thomas Weir stared at the eerie corpses and uttered, Oh, how white they look, how white. The Battle of Little Bighorn, or Custer's Last Stand, as it has since become known, would go down as one of the worst defeats in U.S. military history. In all, five of the 7th Cavalry's 12 companies were annihilated, and Custer was killed, as were two of his brothers, a nephew and a brother-in-law. The total U.S. casualty count included 268 dead and 55 severely wounded. Six died later from their wounds, out of a total fighting force of 700. The battle has since been studied extensively by historians and military tacticians alike. As a case study in failed leadership, poor decision-making, but more than anything, hubris, excessive pride and dangerous overconfidence. Before you assume that George Armstrong Custer was a total loser, think again. He was actually a decorated cavalry officer who had served in distinction in the Civil War, seeing action in the battles of Gettysburg and Antietam in the Overland Campaign. Among those with whom he served, he was known for his larger-than-life personality. His flamboyant personal appearance, which included gold lace coils on his uniform, a red scarf around his neck, and cascading golden locks of hair, which he perfumed with cinnamon oil, and his general disregard for good order and military discipline. He was court-martialed twice during his military career. Even though he had been at the bottom of his class at West Point, he was promoted to the rank of general at the start of the Civil War at age 23, and somehow managed a streak of luck and seeming invincibility, as he had 11 horses shot out from under him. Custer was brash, self-assured, arrogant, and had a habit of refusing to listen to others, often believing that his own judgment was superior to that of others, sometimes even his commanding officers. At Little Bighorn, Custer had been ordered to hold off and wait for reinforcements to arrive before making the attack. But his overconfidence, impatience, and arrogance got the better of him as he foolishly ordered the attack. On top of that, Custer foolishly decided to split his army into three parts to trap the Indian fighting force to prevent their escape. If he had simply obeyed orders and waited for reinforcements to arrive, Little Bighorn most likely would have played out much differently. Custer had also grossly underestimated the challenges that he and his men would face as they charged into battle. 
The Sioux and Cheyenne vastly outnumbered the 7th Cavalry's 700 soldiers with a fighting force of almost 2,500 warriors, and they were armed with repeating rifles. Custer's forces were mostly equipped with single-shot rifles. The leaders of the Sioux and Cheyenne fighting forces, Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse, outsmarted Custer by luring the 7th Cavalry into an unfamiliar field of battle, exploiting the fact that they were split into three parts, and then stunning them with the single largest force of Native American warriors ever assembled on the North American continent. But all the carnage, devastation, and destruction of the Battle of Little Bighorn just might have all been avoided if General George Armstrong Custer would have simply been willing to be humble and listen. Welcome to the Committed Masculinity Podcast, a limited series that explores the issues and challenges facing Christian men who are serious about Jesus' invitation to be a disciple. On each episode of the series, we will review the content of each chapter of the book, Committed, Biblical Masculinity, and then discuss the issues of each episode with a special guest. On today's episode, Chapter 5, Tune Your Ears to Wisdom, George Armstrong Custer and the Fragile Male Ego, with special guest, Ray Owens. Tuning your ears to wisdom. Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 6 says, My son, listen to what I say and treasure my commands. Tune your ears to wisdom and concentrate on understanding. Cry out for insight and ask for understanding. Search for them as you would silver. Seek them like hidden treasures. Then you will understand what it means to fear the Lord, and you will gain knowledge of God. For the Lord grants wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. The word wisdom appears over 200 times in the Bible. We're told to seek it, accept it, listen to it, and ask God for it. We're told that wisdom is better than silver, gold, and priceless possessions. We're told that wisdom leads to long life, riches, honor, pleasantness, and peace. But above anything else, we're told that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 9.10. What does that mean? It means that for us to truly have this invaluable gift of wisdom, respect, honor, and reverence for God must be at the center of our lives. When this happens, we begin to value his word, the Bible, as the ultimate authority for every decision we make in life. We begin to live our lives with the knowledge that God sees all, knows all, and can't be lied to or hidden from. We start truly considering the reality of eternity, understanding that someday each one of us will give an account of our lives to God. Wisdom is best defined as the ability to see things from an eternal, God-honoring perspective and to respond appropriately. When we have God's wisdom in our lives, we respond to life's challenges, difficulties, and obstacles quite differently than the rest of the world because we're willing to take a step back and examine our situation through the lens of what truly matters. So what does any of this have to do with George 
Armstrong Custer. Everything. Like Custer, so often we find ourselves on the battlefield of life, examining our options and facing challenges ranging from the trivial to the eternally significant. We find ourselves daily faced with decisions that have the potential to either become our greatest triumphs or our most disastrous defeats. When we're faced with these kinds of decisions, we have a very important choice. Will we tune our ears to God's wisdom or will we consult something else? Tuning our ears to God's wisdom doesn't have to be some weird, ethereal, or spooky kind of divination. God's wisdom comes to us primarily through Scripture, both in specific truths and in the principles the Scriptures contain. God's wisdom can also come to us by way of trusted, wise, godly counsel from spiritual leaders, mentors, friends, and family members. God's wisdom can present itself to us through opportunities. He's either obviously providing or clearly removing. When we tune our ears to God's wisdom, we seek to discover what His perspective is on the decisions we make and seek to honor Him first and foremost with every choice in our lives. If we want to honor God with our finances, we'll seek to know how to handle our money with wisdom. If we desire to honor God in our marriage and family, we'll apply ourselves to learn how to love, serve, honor, and lead our wives and children with wisdom. If we aspire to honor God in our careers, We'll discover what it means to run a business or work a trade with wisdom. The amazing thing about God's wisdom is that he's promised that he'll give it to us generously in every situation, decision, obstacle, or challenge we face in life if we'll simply ask for it. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. James 1, 5. God's perspective for our every decision is available. We just have to ask for it. Every day we have the choice to humble ourselves and tune our ears to God's wisdom. But sadly, so often we make the choice to consult and tune our ears to something or someone else. The fragile male ego. It's no secret to most people, especially our wives, that most guys don't like being corrected or challenged. For most men, we like to be perceived as competent and skillful in our craft, even if we don't actually know what we're doing. Sometimes this fragile male ego rears its ugly head in the most hilarious, trivial, and ridiculous ways, much to the chagrin, frustration, or even amusement of our wives and kids, like the correct way to work the grill, hang the Christmas ornaments, or drive on the interstate. Sometimes this ego shows up in how we project confidence, aka arrogance, to those around us, and in how we talk about the things we know or the stuff we've accomplished. But most often, our egos get the better of us when they prohibit us from considering the opinions and counsel of others who may actually know more than we do. From what history tells us about our buddy George Custer, I think it may be safe to say he might have been lacking a bit in the humility department. I'm not quite sure what was going on in his head as he assessed the field of battle at Little Bighorn and processed the order he received from his superiors to hold off the attack. I'd like to think that at some point he must have scoffed, rolled his eyes, and turned to the men closest to him and said something like, Where do these schmucks get off telling me how to fight a war? Don't they know who I am, what I've done? where I've been, what I know. 
Then maybe he rattled off the Civil War battles he'd been in or listed the names of the 11 horses that had been shot out from underneath him in combat. However it went down, Custer made a choice that day based on rationale we've all used before in making foolish decisions. It's the rationale that says, I know what I'm doing, and I don't need anyone or anything else telling me what to do. As masculine and tough as that may seem, a mindset like this is actually at the heart of every form of foolishness in all generations across all human history. The heart of a fool. The Bible tells us that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 14.1 The defining characteristic of foolishness is a refusal to acknowledge or honor any type of higher or outside knowledge other than one's own. Someone can still be a fool and acknowledge God with their mind or even their mouth, but in their heart, if they refuse to acknowledge God as superior to themselves in all things, they're a fool. Foolishness is best defined as choosing to see things from a temporary, self-centered perspective and reacting accordingly. Foolishness looks out for self, goes after quick fixes, and settles on the option that requires the least amount of effort. Foolishness picks the path of least resistance and takes shortcuts. Foolishness chooses only to consult the expertise of our own opinion or others that think like we do and will only tell us what we want to hear as we make decisions. The Bible, particularly in the book of Proverbs, doesn't have nice things to say about a foolish man. According to Proverbs, a fool is unteachable, stubborn, and bullheaded, Proverbs 1.7, is reckless and careless in making decisions, Proverbs 14.16, values his own opinion over anything and everything else, Proverbs 28.26, isn't interested in truth, only in expressing his opinion, Proverbs 18.2, is a loudmouth and a babbler, Proverbs 15.2, has a short temper and has no control over it, Proverbs 14.29, is calloused and hurtful with joking, Proverbs 26.18 and 19, loves to stir the pot and create drama, Proverbs 23, loves to argue and loves to be right, Proverbs 23.29.9, is prideful and arrogant, Proverbs 13.16, is ashamed to his family and loved ones, Proverbs 10.1, destroys homes and families, Proverbs 14.1, ultimately runs his own life into ruin and then blames God, Proverbs 19.3. At its core, foolishness is a symptom of a heart unwilling to humble itself and acknowledge other sources of wisdom from the outside. A man with a prideful, foolish heart is unwilling to listen to correction from supervisors, feedback from his co-workers, concerns from his wife, advice from his parents, and ultimately, the truth of God's word. This inner foolishness will always visibly manifest outwardly, sometimes in the simplest and most practical of ways. Foolishness can lead us to make poor financial decisions, where we spend or borrow more than we can actually afford, creating great strain on every area of our lives. Foolishness can lead us to make terrible relational decisions, where we say or do exceptionally reckless and damaging things to our wives, children, and closest friends and family. 
Foolishness can greatly hinder our careers and sabotage any opportunities we have for advancement or long-term success in any given field. Nobody just wakes up one day and decides, I think I'll be a fool. So how does foolishness take over a man's heart and manifest itself outwardly in his life? Through the little things, like tiny, dead flies. Dead flies in the ointment. Ecclesiastes 10.1 says, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. In biblical times, most expensive fragrant perfumes came in the form of ointment that the wearer would spread all over their bodies. To leave the lid open on a jar of expensive fragrant ointment could allow little flies and vermin to come in and ruin valuable perfume. Even the stench of a tiny little dead fly could overpower the fragrance of a priceless perfume. And so it is in life. The idea of this verse is that a wise man doesn't allow the little flies of folly to infest our lives so that it ruins what could be a sweet and pleasant aroma to God and others. It only takes a little bit of folly unchecked to eventually damage and deface our entire lives. It only takes one foolish financial decision to set us back for years. It only takes one foolish business decision to cost us our job. Many a man has lost his marriage, his relationship with his children, and close friendships because of rash, foolish, impulsive decisions made without considering the long-term repercussions. Wisdom is choosing to live with humility, daily inviting the scrutiny and correction of God's word and godly counsel into our lives. When we do this, it's like picking out the dead flies from the ointment of our lives before they start stinking things up and ruining everything. My first real ministry position in any church was working as a youth intern the summer between my freshman and sophomore year of college under my youth pastor, Ray Owens. Ray's youngest son, Jared, and I, who were close friends through high school, were the two summer interns that year. And we honestly spent more time playing ping pong and foosball than we actually did helping our church's youth. As the summer progressed, I started getting lax in my assigned duties and began showing up for work at the church later and later each morning. I started getting lazy and sloppy, arriving at meetings 10 to 15 minutes late. On Tuesday nights, we did an outreach to a local youth detention center. One Tuesday night near the end of the summer, Ray gave me the opportunity to preach. Getting into the detention facility was quite an ordeal, as our entire ministry team had to enter together as a group past metal detectors and a security guard. I've been told to meet the team outside of the facility at 6 o'clock, but true to form, I rolled up around 6.15 to a very unhappy, disgruntled Ray Owens and some very frustrated church members who had all been waiting on me. Ray said nothing to me about it that night, but I could tell my foolish habit had deeply offended and irritated a lot of folks. A few weeks after that night, Ray took me out to lunch. He asked me what I'd learned that summer and if I felt like God may be calling me someday to serve in full-time church ministry. As we talked, he gently but firmly corrected me in my foolish habit of showing up late to meetings. He told me if I wanted to be a pastor someday, I couldn't be rolling up 10 to 15 minutes late to everything because that was disrespectful, rude, and inconsiderate. That small, trivial, seemingly innocuous dead fly had the potential to stink up the entire ointment of my life and ministry. I never forgot that meeting and that conversation. Truthfully, 
That wasn't the first, and that wouldn't be the last, dead fly in my life that Ray Owens loved me enough to point out. It was painful, and it was humbling. But it helped me see more clearly what wisdom looked like in that area of my life. Today, if you and I meet up somewhere for coffee or lunch, I typically try to arrive five minutes early. All thanks to the godly counsel of a wise man who loved me enough to point out a dead fly before it really started to stink. Choosing wisdom over folly. If we truly believe in our hearts that God is everything he says he is, and that our eternity is shaped and determined by our lives now, that will drastically affect our behavior, our decision-making, and our desire to seek out God's will for our daily choices. We will be motivated by an eternal, God-honoring perspective, which is the biblical definition of wisdom. The problem is that many of us believe in our minds that there is a God, but in our hearts, we don't truly revere, respect, and honor Him as God. We don't live our lives with an awareness that He's all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful, and that we'll someday stand before Him and give an account for our lives. If we honestly did believe that in our heart of hearts, we would most certainly seek out His wisdom and perspective on the decisions we make each and every day. So as we find ourselves in the battlefield of life, examining our options and facing weighty and meaningful daily decisions that could either bring us victory or defeat, how do we practically seek out God's wisdom for our lives? Well, first, we ask. Asking God for wisdom takes humility. It's basically an admittance that we don't have it on our own. If it's a difficult decision we need to make, a conversation we need to have, or a situation in which we need clarity, the first thing we must do is ask God through prayer to give us wisdom, show us His will, and reveal to us His perspective on the matter. James 1.5 promises us that God will give us wisdom, generously and without fault. We also ask God to show us His wisdom as we read and study the Word and seek to apply its truths and principles to our situation. We then ask God to give us wisdom as we ask for godly counsel from spiritual leaders and mentors in our lives. As we ask, we have to be open to whatever wisdom God reveals, even if it doesn't necessarily line up with our previously held opinions or perspectives on the matter. Second, we assess. As we tune our ears to hearing God's wisdom from Scripture, godly counsel, and during time in prayer, it's right for us then to reflect on what we've heard and wait on God's timing. God has given us a mind, an intellect, to evaluate the information we receive. With our minds, we process what we think might be the most responsible and God-honoring course of action for the situations at hand. Journaling, fasting, praying, making lists of pros and cons, and simply being still and waiting on God are all part of assessing what His wisdom looks like for us. But I really think that this shouldn't just be something we do when we have a big or weighty decision looming like a career change or moving to another state. We should be evaluating our lives every day to make sure we're living according to His wisdom. Finally, we commit. No matter what decision or approach we take regarding any situation, there are no 100% guarantees that everything will work out perfectly. Chances are, we'll still encounter difficulty and feel tempted to second-guess ourselves in the decisions we make, no matter what they are. But the only thing we can do is seek God's wisdom through scripture, prayer, godly counsel, and looking at circumstances and opportunities, assess our situation responsibly, and make a decision that seems to be the most God-honoring. Regret is simply wasted energy. 
Wisdom views failures made in the pursuit of honoring God as learning opportunities. Sometimes you win some, sometimes you learn some. I often look back at things I said or wrote five years ago and think, man, I had no clue what I was talking about. And I'm sure five years from now, I'll think the same thing. Sometimes I'm overwhelmed and discouraged by the amount of dead flies that get stuck in the ointment of my life. In those moments when I feel discouraged over my own lack of wisdom, I have to remember that growing in wisdom is a lifelong journey. And the God that we serve is generous and gives wisdom to any who would ask without finding fault. That's good news. So let's tune our ears to his wisdom. He'll speak. If only we will humble ourselves and listen. So my guest today is Ray Owens, the one, the only, (laughs) infamous Ray Owens. So, Ray, I've known you for a long time, but uh, tell our listeners just a little bit about you. Well, I was an Air Force brat, uh, born in Alaska, raised mostly in Florida, and uh, was raised Roman Catholic, and uh, I came to know Jesus at a Youth for Christ convention in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, not knowing that a great deal of my life later would be right, you know, really close to Gatlinburg here in Dalton, Georgia. Actually, I live in Chatsworth, but the church that I serve is in Dalton, Georgia. And um, <laughs> 44 years as a youth pastor, and now I'm an executive pastor. So I have no idea what I'm doing, but it's it's kind of <laughs> um, married to Sabrina, which uh, we have three sons. I love my wife and my boys. Uh, Jeremy, Brandon, and Jared, which you know them all, and yeah, yeah, yeah. life with them all, and and they're all over the place. Brandon is now in Port Orange, Florida. He he finally oh wow, know that. Nashville uh, for the the crazy weather that that you guys have in your area, but uh, <laughs> so he gets to Florida and he gets hit with a hurricane. So go figure. <laughs> yeah, but Jeremy, so man, yeah, go ahead. 40, 44 years of youth ministry. I didn't realize it had been that long. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah, it's been amazing. That's why I say I don't know what else to do. I can't, I sit in meetings and I can't, I think for students and I think for teenagers and I'm saying, I, I don't have to just think that one way anymore. <laughs> so you, I mean, that's a long time. A lot of guys will view youth ministry as kind of a stepping stone to greener pastures or to, you know, um, it, it was kind of the, the joke for a while that, you know, somebody came in and did youth ministry for 18 months to two years. I think that was the shelf life of a youth minister before they would move on to more adult ministry. What was it about youth ministry that um, just kind of captured your heart and made you stay in it for, for 44 years? Well, first of all, I thought God was crazy to call me into youth ministry. I was a criminal <laughs> justice major. I had a master's in uh, criminology and, and everything, but uh, but God just called me in there. And then, I don't know, God just captured my heart. And, you know, I fell in love with, with teenagers. And um, it, it just was something crazy. And then I think God showed me so many things uh, about the heart of a teenager that just kept compelling me to keep going. And, and believe me, there were so many times I said, okay, God, what's my exit strategy? And 
you know, God doesn't give me exit strategy. He usually gives me names. He said, no, 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 there's a Josh Brooker, there's an Andy Lowry, there's these kids that, you know, I really want you to pour into. So that that's just wow. kept me going. And, um, you know, we just did life like that. And, of course, I couldn't have done any of that without Sabrina. She's she's amazing and just supporting mm-hmm. and standing with me all the way. And so God just confirmed it each time. So we we stuck with it. Yeah. I'm so glad you did. You, you, uh, um, I'm sure some of those times when you were praying about an exit strategy were probably the times when I was in your youth group or, uh, <laughs> when, when, when I was your youth intern. Um, man, I, I think one of the most amazing parts of the ministry that God's given you is just a heart for discipleship and for specifically discipling young men and young women that have gone on to serve in full-time ministry. So can you talk a little bit about that and kind of how that's fleshed itself out and maybe how that got started in your ministry? Yeah, man, I I love the end of your book. I love that you focus, bring it all down into a funnel right there at discipleship. But yeah, that, that's Mm -hmm. been my passion. I, um, being at Troy University in the early days and doing college ministry and student ministry. And um, I just remember so many things happening, but um, I, I came to a place where I just thought something's broken with Christianity. Something's wrong. Something's mm-hmm. missing. And I had all these wonderful experiences and these awakenings, but I just felt like something wasn't the scripture and the Christian life just didn't, uh, seemed to fit together somehow. And then all of a sudden I just was awakened to discipleship. Uh, God just opened my eyes. I began to see it all through the scripture, you know, the great commission, second Timothy two, two, and man, it, it just captured me in those days. Uh, the navigators were kind of the boss yeah. of discipleship. And I remember going to Jacksonville, Florida and taking the, the navigators courses and their trainings um, I read Robert Coleman's The Master Master's Plan of Evangelism, Master Plan of Evangelism. Yeah, and oh my gosh, it just I, it's just like God captured my heart and I said, This is the answer. This is how whatever else I do in student ministry, I have got to do discipleship with students and raise up leaders, interns like you, and that that will just um do life with these these people and these teenagers and do it so and honestly when other things weren't going great in the church it, it was really that passion for discipleship that kept me going uh the names mm. i got i knew what i needed to do with them so yeah and i'm so glad your wow. book just man it, it was the the finale that was fantastic there uh, <laughs> well, we're just doing chapter five in this episode, so people have to wait till they get to that one. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> well, I'll quit, but honestly, I, I'll quit doing the spoilers then. <laughs> <laughs> well, honestly, though, I mean, not to you know blow smoke or anything, but um, when I was an intern there at what was Evangelical Methodist Church, what is now Church on the Hill in Dalton, um, you gave me the book, The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. And um, at the time, I was... Uh, you know, an undergrad student at a, a Christian college, and and I was hearing all this stuff about missiology and theology, and you know, all all these classes, and I had yet to 
have someone give me a roadmap for how to actually live this thing out. And so, man, that, that planted some seeds in me and that, that stuff gets in your crawl and you're not content mm-hmm. to do it any other way except for, you know, that style of relational discipleship pouring into and investing. So thank you for all the times that you poured into me and invested in me. And um, I'm very, very grateful. And the crazy part is I didn't even know what you were doing while you were doing it. <laughs> yeah. So kind of funny how that works. But um, so... This whole thing that we're talking about today is about wisdom, and you have had 44 years of youth ministry under your belt, and you've raised three young men, and uh, young men um, aren't exactly known for their wisdom. Uh, (laughs) I remember many, many corrections that you uh, had to give me over the years, both as a student in your youth group and then also as your youth intern. Um, so it seems like some of that is just youthful wisdom. That's just being a young guy, but it seems like some guys never really grow out of that. Why, why do you think some guys kind of get stuck in these patterns of foolishness where they don't choose to pursue wisdom and listen to wisdom? Well, I think again, and you talk about it in your book, a lot of it is, I don't think they ever own their faith. They, they never mm. come to a level, um, and and as you say in this chapter, you know, the dead flies analogy is incredible. Uh, I just think they just open up their life to all kinds of things that that just consume them. And they never really, I, I think unless their identity is set in Jesus and in a relationship, not not a religion, but in that relationship, I think I think it's so easy to get consumed in all these other things rather than really the purpose for their life and and uh, the wisdom just seems like white noise in the background you know rather than sure. something that's so valuable to them that they need to grasp and walk in and and it's to give them life but they want to do life their own way right 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 so uh, you know when you're 16 or when you're 15 the most important thing to you is showing off in front of your buddies that you're the funniest or you're the coolest or you know, showing off in front of that cute girl that's, uh, you know, the other side of the youth room, right? Right. Um, and it seems like, unfortunately, though, there are some guys that kind of replace those really juvenile pursuits for the exact same thing, only a adult version of that. Um, whether it be in their career to impress the people that they work with. But instead, it's, just, it's not the buddies around the lunch table at, you know, in high school. It becomes the guys in the office, right? Right. And it's not the cute girl on the other side of the youth room. It's, uh, you know, some someone else, maybe even the person they're not married to. Um, but I think that's that's very perceptive that we so often see the white noise of all the stuff coming against us and we, we don't actually think about the fact that we can them. Um, I wrote about the fragile male ego uh, mm-hmm. because I've seen that at work in my own life. Um, have you seen that get you in trouble or are those around you in trouble? Oh yeah. Yeah. There's too many times that, that, that has really <laughs> affected me that, you know, whether you're, you're with a group of men or teenagers or something. And it's almost like, excuse the expression, like a pissing contest. Uh, you know, sure. you, people want to, I want, let's, let's spit watermelon seeds or, or let's shoot each other with paintballs or 
airsoft, or, <laughs> you know, and uh, of course you and I have a funny story about paintball, but um, <laughs> with your little brother, I almost got assassinated, yes. but, um, but it's just crazy. We should probably stop and tell that story because I'll get emails about it if we don't. Oh, well, I'll let you explain it. Okay. All right. So real quick, and then we'll get back to that. So we were playing paintball a long time ago. My brother was 10, I think. So I'm in my early 20s. He was 10. He never played paintball. We had told him, hey, it hurts to get shot with a paintball, but he didn't actually <laughs> understand what that meant. And um, he was with me behind a bunker or something. I don't know. And I don't know if it was you or Brandon that shot him with a paintball. I think it was me. But he started – it was you. <laughs> oh, my goodness, yeah. So he started screaming – so loud that everybody stopped the game because they thought he'd broken his femur or something. And uh, no, it's just he's getting hit by a paintball from Ray. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then we came back to the group and he was going to point blank shoot me. And you had to say, no, 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 that's not the way it works. And, and <laughs> retribution. Yeah. So I'm sitting okay, there. Okay. Sorry. Yeah. Down, but yeah. So anyway, it, it was, uh, yeah. it's fun to, tell that story but it was not so fun you know last thing i want to do is hurt him but it was paintball (laughs) and uh but yeah i think i think guys there's a there's a thing um i'm i'm training up a new youth pastor and 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 i tell him i said man you get you get a group of those guys together and you, you open up a story and the next one the story gets bigger for them. And then the next mm. one, it gets bigger and it goes around the circle and it's just crazy, you know, and, and how guys have to, have to compete and have to beat the other one, have to, to stand up more. So it's, it is a difficult thing. And, and men have a problem sometimes with that uh, sure. until they really get to that point of, of the true friendship and the true brotherhood and, and, the transparency and the honesty and uh, that you talk about. Hmm. So what do you think uh, it takes for a young guy to get to a place where he's willing to listen to wisdom from people older than him that know more than him? Uh, Sometimes it takes a lot of pain. Sometimes it's in the midst of crisis. Um, I mean, I have found personally in ministry that a lot of times it takes getting guys away uh, out of their comfort zone, maybe at a men's retreat, or we just did a youth retreat up at Fort Mountain, and um, uh, we have a relatively um, new group of students now. Post COVID, it's like okay, God recreate the youth group, and uh, mm-hmm. so I was up there uh, just kind of supporting the, the the team that was leading that, and it's just amazing as the guys got away from their comfort zone and they got together and you could just see the progression as small group to small group built uh, to where they were really transparent. They were really open. They were really sharing truth. They, they got beyond the, the men bragging about all their, their conquest or whatever they were doing and really got sure. their, uh, the heart of Jesus inside of them. Yeah. 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 Wow. So, Taking guys that are in that place of just um, maybe walking in some foolishness and they've been doing it for a long time, but maybe they're not willing to be humble yet. So your suggestion for them would be get away from a little bit, maybe 
pursue honesty and vulnerability within a men's group or go on a men's retreat or within the church, find a, a brother in Christ? I mean, what, what would you say to a guy that's maybe in that place where he needs counsel and he recognizes it? Yeah, I think that's great. You, you've got to start somewhere. And, and the first step, of course, is recognize it. Uh, you, you kind of put a couple steps in there, uh, you know, that, again, it's so true. In, in humility, we first have to come to a place to, to seek God's wisdom, God's heart. And a lot of times that does happen with a one-on-one uh, situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think sometimes I've just seen it happen in small groups of men, accountability groups, um, uh, little coffee cells or groups that get together for coffee and talk or, or they get together for a meal. Um, I think that's a, that's a great incubator for those kind of things to happen. And, and I think for guys, when, when they get into it and they get to a certain point and, and they start dropping their defenses and they start taking off their mask, um, it, it begins to be real to them and, and they can begin mm-hmm. that thing. And then from there, they from the relationship, the accountability, you know, and as you said about, you know, we, we have to access and assess our situation and bring in the right wisdom and counsel, which, again, godly men that would stand with us, the scripture, the prayer, all the things um, that are there. Yeah. And, and we have to purposely engage in this. It's hard for guys. It's really hard. Sure. It's easy for us to go and sit and watch a ball game together or go out and in our neck of the woods, the, the craze is disc golf. Oh, my gosh. Everybody <laughs> here. And they're, they're building them all over the Dalton area. You're one of the companies, nice. the companies here. But that, I'm just saying, this is such a perfect thing for, for guys to get real and be discipleship. Yeah. You know, you're two or three of you are doing a hole together and you're, you're throwing the disc and you're talking. And, and we just had some kids who came off the retreat and then they went to play disc golf with some of the leaders. And yesterday mm. in our staff meeting, um, we always talk about testimonies and staff and several of the, the youth leaders um, were sitting there talking about, we literally saw these kids talk and, and there was a change in how, how they played and talked and, and just disc golf. And, uh, wow. So, so again, it, it's just an amazing thing that happens, but I think guys have to get together, uh, in whatever form, um, they can and, and just be together and be real. And of course well, there has to be some confidentiality and some trust in that situation. Sure. 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 What about the guy that needs help in a certain area of his life? Maybe it's his marriage. Maybe it's his, Purity. Maybe he's got a addiction to online pornography, or or maybe in his finances, and he needs help. He needs wisdom, but there's so much shame that he's walking in, and so the thought of asking for help, the thought of opening up, that's just terrifying to him. What would you say to the guy like that? I would say, in some ways, his his emotional spiritual life is dependent on him getting free of this, and Jesus never created him to carry these things on his shoulders. And uh, I love, I just feel like God shows me sometimes uh, men that are broken, dads that are broken. And um, I love being able to just invite them to coffee or, you know, depending on what they're into, 
you know, I'm, you know me, I'm a little technical geek and, you know, <laughs> a fun day to me is go to Micro Center down in Atlanta or, you know, something <laughs> like that, just to uh, hit some stores and stuff, but just to take somebody along and, and have a conversation with them and begin to talk about things. And uh, I, I think that's a great way that we can do it or invite them to just a, a really um, um, a social event, like a couple families eating dinner together or going out to eat or yeah. something like that. I, I think just to break the ice, um, hmm. I'm in a small group with a, with a, it's, it's a mixed group, but it's so neat to now see, um, even though it's couples in the group, uh, beyond that, we have, um, you know, the men are starting to get together and we're starting to talk. And it's so neat mm. to just, because I think because the relationship was established in the small group, that just kind of opened the door now for us as men to get together and talk. Uh, so yeah. there's, there's a lot of different ways we can get to it. But I, I think at some point, I mean, what Jesus did when he approached people, you know, he, he got in, in their lane, in their zone, uh, and and mm. he said, come follow me. Um, and, and he yeah. did, had meals with them. So I think at some place, um, and, and I love doing that. I, I love just uh, knocking on the door of somebody and say, hey, would you like to, to hang out? And uh, it's great. Oh. I, I, I got a call recently from somebody that um, was in youth group a long time ago. And, and they had just got to a point where they were going through some counseling. And, and, mm. and um, you know, they called me and began to speak of some things. And they said, I know now I need to get these things off my chest. And it's so funny because mm. the thing they said, do you know, 12 years ago, you called me. I was a little middle school kid. And you called me and said, can I take you out to lunch? And it was the huh. best eating place in Dalton, uh, Golden Corral <laughs> or something like that. Hey, West, 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 Western Sizzler. And I thought, oh, yes, man, I really yes, had I bad, it, Lord. bad taste back then, didn't I? But, uh, <laughs> but he said, you asked me, you asked me questions. And, and he mm. said they were, he said, I just have to tell you, I lied. I lied to everything mm. he said. And uh, so it was, it was wild, but that just, who knew 12 years ago when I took this kid out to lunch, him being a man now, you know, God was going to work in his life. He opened up and and he was able to share. Honestly, I didn't teach him a lot. I mean, he just, he shared his heart and there there was tremendous healing just in that. But who would know just wow. One, wow. one time, one meal, and, and that would be yeah. something that laid the seeds in him to come out yeah. Well, and I think that's, that's so good because for the guys that are in that place of shame where they just go, man, I can't open up and tell someone about my struggles, about the things I need help in. Um, those relational environments where you seek out another brother in Christ, um, and you start understanding that we're all broken and we all need Jesus and we've all got places in our heart that are getting healed by Jesus. Um, once we believe the gospel that it's not based on our performance, it's based on what Jesus has done for us. And that empowers us just to be real and to be open and to go, man, I need help. I need community. I don't, I can't just do this by myself. And 
Fortunately, we've created this mythology about masculinity that just says a real man, you know, doesn't need help from anybody. He can do it himself. He doesn't need to ask help. He doesn't need to seek wisdom. He's got it. But the Bible actually says it's the fool that says in his heart there's no God and says I'm the one that does it myself. I don't need God. I don't need anybody else. And so I I just think that's amazing just that the power of relational investment. And, uh, man, your ministry bears testament to that in so many ways. Um, I shared a story in the book about uh, you calling me out for being late all the time. Uh, we we were joking about uh, that this these past few weeks trying to get on Skype together and record. It's kind of it's funny, you know. He said, "Oh man, you, you talked to me talked in the book about me being uh, you know on time, and then I haven't called you back in a punctual way." But uh, <laughs> man, that really that really helped me. You you love me enough to say, "Hey, this is a character flaw. You need to fix this. You need help with this." And um. Man, that's deeply humbling for some of all of us, really, to have kind of folly pointed out. But um, for me, it was me being late all the time. But what are some of these kind of dead flies of folly that you see guys dealing with that that end up growing into something that really stinks their lives up? Well, I think that I see so many guys trying to meet, as, as I understand it, legitimate needs in illegitimate ways, you know, I mean, we all, we all want to be loved. We, we all have that need to be loved. We all have that need to, to be known, um, to be accepted, all these different things that really God first provides for us. Um, but, but there's so many things. I, I mean, I've seen so many guys, I mean, into their thirties now that are just so consumed. They, they give all their time to a video game addiction or, uh, just, it could be a sport. It could be something that just consumes their life. And, um, the, I I love the way you talk about the character and, and that so much of our society and culture is all about what's above the surface, the appearances, um, Mm. maybe what people see as our skill level, but, it's it's below the sur- surface, the character things that, like you said, the things that are done when nobody's looking, you know, that your, your true character. Uh, and, and the goal would be that what's above, below and above would be the same. And But I think right. a lot of guys that struggle with the secret life of pornography, um, they, mm. their, their, their heart and their mind has been captured uh, by that thing. And um, um, I I see that as a huge thing and, and, uh, all, all of the, again, the post COVID things that we're seeing with men that they don't now don't know how to come back out and relate. They've lived in this lonely, isolated place. And, uh, there's this cry for true brotherhood and to be known in, in relationship. I, I love what you said about perfection and shame because, uh, really, most people think that Christianity is based on perfection and, and that sure. just causes shame. And I see so many guys caught up and, and so many that say, Hey, I'm not enough. I'm, I'm mm. enough. And, and Jesus's voice is saying, I am enough and, and mm. I'm in you and I'm making you enough. You're a son, you're a son. And I think the identity thing yeah. is so cool, but, um, uh, yeah, a big thing, I, a, a huge thing is the pornography 
fly that's mm. in appointment um, um, again and I think with with jobs and stuff now people are so they're reevaluating reevaluating everything since COVID because you know they said well sure. I didn't go in an office and some of them still don't mm-hmm. and um, right, right, right. there's like a re-entering thing that they're struggling with and, and I think the hum- yeah. honesty the truth. Uh, of, of really relating to somebody in, in, in honesty and humility is, is, is crazy today. Yeah. Well, and it kind of seems like the more isolation that we kind of pursue in an individualistic society, the less accountability we have. Yeah. And so more and more, I think we are living in our own echo chambers where we've got these glaring issues in our lives spiritually and relationally and because we're not really in intentional relationships, we don't see it. We don't notice it. We don't. We don't have a uh, a Ray Owens to go. Hey, man, being late all the time mm. is bad. You need to stop that, right? And and some of that is because of the isolation and the individualism. But some of it is because we as men um, haven't taken steps to pursue community and open ourselves up to voices in our lives that would give us wisdom. Um, and then the voices that are there that do give us wisdom, sometimes when they start to speak wisdom to us, sometimes we push away from the table and take our ball and go home because yeah. it hurts, right? Um, but I love what you said. Sometimes it takes a level of pain mm-hmm. for us to be willing to say, yeah, you're right. I need help. I need wisdom. So, yeah, it's good, man. And, you know, it's it's not hard to tell somebody, hey, you're – you're not doing it right. You got to be on time. You know, uh, I think yeah. about the the youth detention center. Of course, it's it's. I'm not as crazy at that time, but you know, for them, they log you in. You have to go through the security checks and and uh, yeah. <laughs> just to make you feel a little better. You're not the you weren't the first and you aren't the last that I've had to talk to about that. But I okay, can, good. That doesn't feel so better. Going into the youth detention center and thinking. You know, the guy leading it would go, uh, hey, is your, your guy coming or your girl coming? And I go, yeah, they're not usually late. So, you know, and, and that's not the place you want to stand up and try to do a comedy routine in RYDC when, you know. All yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Oh, man. Well, Thank you for uh, lovingly calling me out, and uh, I appreciate it. And, and there—that's only so. That's the one example that I could share in the book. There are many, 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 many other ones that I couldn't share in the book that you uh, love me enough to go. Hey, that's uh, that's not, that's not a good thing. But uh, I'm really grateful for you, man. And yeah. Thank you for for loving me enough to do that. So. Well, thank you, Josh. And I I have to say, um, you know, the whole thing about. Paul's Barnabas and Timothy's in our life. And I've had so many guys and some, some girls too, that have just spoken to my life. And when I have gone way off course and, and, or even they noticed those little things and yours was just a little thing. I knew that would, would mess you up for the rest of your life if you didn't get it right then. But there have been Mm. those people. And I am so grateful for the men that have come alongside me and and just helped yeah. me and and corrected me and loved me enough to do that. And so really what we're talking about is you know Jesus loves these men and we need to have enough love also to to walk with them 
and and reach out to them and maybe say the hard things in love to them. Amen. Amen. Well, Ray, man, thank you so much. Always good to see you. And uh, I got to see you a couple of weeks ago. You're up here in Nashville. We ran into each other at a conference impromptu. Wasn't yeah. planning that, but uh, yeah. And maybe next time I will be. I'll have my beard, and I'll be able to uh, line up with the beard podcast. Beard <laughs> yeah, Bible. there you go. Beard survival. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Good deal, Ray. Well, I love you, man, and I'm grateful for you. And uh, thank you. Thank you again. Okay. Love you, Josh. Thanks for listening to the Committed Masculinity Podcast. If you like what you've heard and you want more, head over to Amazon and pick up your copy of the book, Committed, Biblical Masculinity. Please give this podcast a share, leave us a review, and tune in next time. Thanks again for listening.